Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. We are all of us held together by words, and when words go, nothing much remains. That's Martin Amos writing about his father, Kingsley, toward the end of his life. And it's true, of course, isn't it? But how many of us are ready to locate ourselves in the language that we have at our command? I guess all writers live by the pen, or maybe the pixel, these days. But like two of his literary heroes, Shakespeare and Vladimir Nabokov, Martin Amis belongs to what in every generation feels like a vanishing breed, the writer with an almost Kabbalistic reverence for the power of words themselves. In Amis's novels and essays, this often translates into intense photographic lucidity. Other times we get the verbal shiv, a wickedly hilarious twist of the knife in the gut of something bloated and stupid, like the present American moment. His newest collection of essays is The Rub of Time, Bellow, Nabokov, Hitchens, Travolta, Trump, Essays and Reportage, 1994 to 2017. Its subjects include porn, John Travolta, tennis, Saul Bellow, and the strange business of literary interviews like this one. Welcome to Think Again, Martin. Thank you. So as I was writing that introduction, my son looked up from his video game and he said to me, I am totally spamming this hack. And I felt that I, I just ought to share that with you. <laughs> what, did it, what does it mean? So the hack means, I guess, that he's doing some tricky thing with the video game, getting around the, the rules. And spamming it means he's just doing it over and over again. So what does that tell you about the future of our society? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's sometimes I have a sort of waking nightmare that um, the language won't last and um, in 50 years time people will be shuffling around and it would hardly be worth opening your mouth because you, communication has been soiled so much. But actually language is very resilient and um, it has its own checks and balances like the American system yeah. and that have held up fairly well on one side of Congress, at least. <laughs> um, so I'm fairly confident that that won't happen. And Orwell's writings about political language, although brilliant, have, have not really come true in that we, we know what we mean. And, you know, it's, it's not a public debate about language. Um, there will be contributions to it, but it really takes place within the conscience of every writer you know are you going to be a careless user of words or a careful user of words right and i hope there will be enough people who will still feel as a matter of self-respect and honor to use words carefully you know once you train yourself up to a certain level and it's nothing to do with your education it's to do with your autodidact streak that you go on honing your verbal skills and dexterity and knowledge and with luck that there'll be always be enough of them do you feel that as a writer though there's also an impulse and maybe a necessity to stretch the language as well i mean i'm thinking about your writing style was very different no doubt from that of your father's generation 
And I would imagine that there were some from that generation who would look at what you and your contemporaries were doing and balk and complain that the language was falling apart and so Including on. Including my father. <laughs> okay. Of course, the next generation should alienate the previous generation. I mean, that's just, that's a law of life and it's a law of literature as well. That um, when a writer appears who makes people feel uneasy mm. and usually attracts a great deal of criticism as well as praise and as well as general you know, notice that here is talent. It should be awkward. And if it's original, it, I mean, there are poets uh, and critics who've argued that actually originality and talent are the same thing, hmm. uh, not just an element of each other, but the same thing. And it's true. I mean, originality means among other things, freshness and a new way of looking at things and a new way of making it strange. And so bound to be a bit of a jolt. Right, right. And yet there are limits. You write in one of the essays in, or two of the essays in this book, I think, about Finnegan's Wake, which for you and maybe also Nabokov represents kind of the, the waning end of Joyce's talent because it, he devolves into an experimentalism that others can't really follow. Well, think about Finnegan's Wake. Um, which some people think is brilliant, by the way. Oh, I, I know. <laughs> Michael, Michael Shabon is ready. <laughs> Two or three times. Really? Yeah. But I think it's, it's such an antisocial work that it, it took him 15 years. And really, it's an incredible undertaking that you're going to write about the world of dreams. He said Ulysses is about the waking world and Finnegan's Wake is about the sleeping world. Okay. And he was going to address it in multilingual puns. Uh, you know, wow, what a thing to imagine, let alone execute. So you but, have to, like, ima admire the project uh, well, or the ambition you, anyway. Do you? I mean, <laughs> um, writing is all about, is a mixture of aspiration and anxiety. Hmm. And Joyce had plenty of aspiration, but not enough anxiety. Hmm. And I sometimes think it could be handy as an analytical tool, although it's very woolly, but to d divide what a writer has to offer into genius and talent. Mm -hmm. Genius being the sort of the God-given altitude of perception and expressiveness, um, and talent being knowing what goes where, how to make, how to modulate, how to draw the reader in. And Joyce had a ton of genius, but no talent whatever, mm. um, ex except in his first book, Dubliners, which is totally accessible and, um, and a great triumph, I think. But then Portrait of the Artist, very feeble and... You're not a big fan of Ulysses? Big fan, but I mean, in Ulysses, it's only the voices of Molly and Leopold mm. and the ones you want, not Stephen Dedalus. <laughs> right. Stephen Dedalus is, is a virtuoso bore, you know, terrible pedant and hammer away at things. Even Joyce has only, when you, when you kiss goodbye to all the props of social realism, as he did immediately after Dubliners, really, mm. um, then... You, 
you're pretty much doomed for a much lower success rate, paragraph by paragraph. And only about 25% of Ulysses really works. Right. And works, you know, fantastically well. But um, it's a proclamation. All experimentation proclaims the genius of the writer and almost dismisses talent as a, a sort of fogey-ish concern. But mm. I think you've got to get the balance right. So the new generation of writers should scare off the older generation of writers, but at the same time, the older generation of writers, I would think, especially if they're readers, which they mostly are, would be curious and would want to try to connect and understand. Um, one of my favorites is David Foster Wallace. And I wondered whether you had read much of him, and if so, what you thought. Um, I have a feeling he might repulse you in some ways, but I wasn't sure. <laughs> no, um, no, not at all. I, I admire him very much, although do I want to have a read of him last thing at night? Um, <laughs> like everyone else, I've read about a third of Infinite Jest. Okay. The jest is, is good, but the infinite bit is, <laughs> I think you can be too clever to be a good novelist. And... Mm. and I think his essays are brilliant, and his his writings about tennis are... Uh, yeah, I thought you might have read those, yeah. No one's written be <laughs> better about tennis than him. But again, it, it, it comes down to using up the reader's goodwill. And the reader comes to a novel or to a writer, previously unknown writer, with a great deal of goodwill. Mm. And I find he's one of the writers who burns off that goodwill, not immediately, you know, but after a while it's just, it's too much like hard work. And there, there will always be an echelon of young people who, who love that challenge. I will say that I, I read that book when I was about 30 at the moment when I decided that I would stop only reading books by dead people. I felt I had done whatever justice I was required to do by reading only books by, by renowned dead authors um, up to that point. And, That's and a good policy, though. I mean, reading, reading younger writers is, is much chancier than reading uh, acclaimed dead writers, because despite what you know, book reviewers and, and almost all literary critics say, there is only one way of judging literature. Mm. And most criticism, certainly most book, all book reviewing, is is rhetorical. It's saying, you know, he shows this, but he doesn't show that. And all they're talking about is their preference. Right. And they think up a lot of synonyms for expressing that preference, but it's all it is is a preference. The only judge is time. Right. So you're much better off with... Uh, a, a dead white male or, <laughs> or dead black male or woman uh, than you are with the latest 25-year-old. That, that's how I felt. I felt it would be irresponsible not to have read as much of, like, the Russians as I possibly could, you know. And But so then I went in, I read Infinite Jest, and unlike your experience, and maybe I was the right age for it, maybe it was my generation, whatever, 
But um, I was totally enraptured by every second of it. Maybe, you know, I, I understand that it's woolly and it's sort of sprawling and all of that. But I also delighted in the sort of digressive tactic of the foot, the end notes. I thought that there was something quite brilliant in that in a way like that really speaks to where we're at. I mean, we don't need to talk endlessly about David Foster Wallace. But well, <laughs> um, that infinite jest is... Um, is the category that that novel is in mm. is used to be known as the baggy monster <laughs> and um like stream of consciousness novel like the experimental novel that's more or less dead now mm. the baggy monster mm. i'm writing a baggy monster at oh the moment excellent getting quite near the end of it and um i still think there are the great there's great beauty in the digressive essayistic style so i i'm going to chip in with my baggy monster but um <laughs> you're asking a lot of the reader and the readers for whatever reason is much less inclined to give you that effort now and that's just it's it's partly to do with why poetry is in is under threat and in retreat slightly there's no big poets no, there's huge yeah, figures there are no lowells there are no Ordens. I'm sure you would not agree with me that rap ever comes close to poetry, but as someone who's read widely in terms of originality, sparkle, energy, brilliance of language, uh-huh, some of it, some of it gets there. Yeah. Well, let's see if any of it survives in a century's time, or indeed anything survives in a century's time. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we read obituaries for the literary culture every week, and I I sometimes get the feeling that the time won't work as a judge anymore. Mm. That it, it's all getting too diffuse, and but it, it hasn't failed yet. And you know, when I began in the early 1970s, the literary novel was a much smaller thing than it is now. Now, or, right. or was a few years ago, uh, where people really did take notice of a quote-unquote important new novel and there are festivals on every acre of <laughs> the planet now boisterous literary festivals but that may well come to an end they didn't exist in the early 70s you, you wrote a novel and you sent it in and it got reviewed and that was that no yeah. no interviews no book tours no television no radio it was just an enclosed world I wonder whether that's a, a phenomenon of the increasing popularity of the novel or simply a phenomenon of the professionalism of publishing, you know, and the way that publicity has metastasized and professionalized. What's responsible for it, I'm sure, is the expansion of the media. And that happened in about 1980, because I remember mm -hmm. my first three novels, you know, did fine, but were not the focus of any media attention. And then suddenly the, the newspapers got fatter and fatter and the extra material was not extra news, it was extra features. Right. And suddenly they ran out of all the other types of so-called celebrity and found themselves, often to their dismay in Britain, <laughs> um, interviewing and writing features about uh, serious writers that appetite for content has led to a kind of exhaustive, prurient interest in every aspect of every 
writer's yeah. life and when they go to the bathroom, etc. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's on the debit side. <laughs> right, right. Although it, it, it's very nice to make a dent and to feel that there is an intense curiosity about the creative process. Mm. The novel dramatizes that process. And when Norman Mailer wrote his uh, really brilliant book about how a novel is made, he called the book The Spooky Art. And right. there is a lot that is very spooky about how novels are put together. And it, it's all to do with the subconscious. And, um, yeah. and that, I find it fascinating. And I also find it uh, very hard to understand how it works. And there is a sort of uh, magic about putting a novel together that I still find absolutely mysterious and fascinating. A long time ago, I asked... Um a friend of yours, uh, Salman Rushdie, on this program, sort of how you, he described writing a novel as a kind of marathon. You know, he said playwrights and, and sometimes poets are quicker creatures, but that writing a novel is a, is a marathon. And that in, you know, in his case, it sometimes takes him, I don't know, four or five years to write the thing. And as someone who is more of a, maybe a, a hare than a tortoise, I, I look at that and I wonder, how do you, and I'm sure it's different for every writer, how do you sustain the momentum? How do you sustain the faith, if you want to call it that, right? To go into the spooky art and, and know that something will emerge that, you know, you'll be able to live with at the end of the, all that effort? Well, uh, Keats famously came up with a very good f phrase for this. And Keats, who um, unbelievably died at 25, wrote mm. a lot of very long poems. He's, he called it negative capability, capability. yes, mm. where you, the ability to proceed in doubt. And you, you're going to get plenty of doubt when you're writing a novel. Yeah. And, and you go through it every time. You have your nadir when you're at your lowest point. <laughs> and you think this chapter is no good and in fact the whole novel is no good and in fact all my novels are no good <laughs> and when you reach that point you know you're ready to proceed to press mm. on but it has to be as emptying as that uh, where you you think i've got nothing you know it's just but that knowledge and that ability to proceed well you had the advantage of of having a writer father, so you saw maybe saw some of that with him. I don't, I don't know. There've been disadvantages <laughs> to that, but many advantages too. And then they're not. It's not like taking over the family restaurant. But the the example of someone who you know plugs on and gets it done, right. and where there's a lot of doubt along the way, and he certainly instilled something in me to do with that. And another advantage is perhaps not caring quite so much about uh, hostile criticism. Mm. Oscar Wilde said a bad review should ruin your breakfast but not affect your lunch. <laughs> and uh, I know novelists who it ruins dinner five years later. It's something they carry around with them. Do you have any sense of why that might be? Like it seems to me that there are some, novel some novelists who write out of, who are almost philosophers, that they're writing out of some great kind of moral urge, and that there are others who are 
and I'm not sure that they're mutually exclusive, but who are more interested in exploring character, exploring form, the ones who can't take it, is it because each novel is more personal to them? It's quite right to take it personally. It's quite right to take it as an insult to your honor. Mm. You know, the, the sort of thing that used to start a duel, duel yes. a century ago. <laughs> Sadly, um, there, are no, there are no duels uh, for writers at no, this point. No, you can't say, my, my seconds will call on you tomorrow morning, pistols or swords. Um, but you should, you should take it that seriously. Yeah. But I've just seen too much of it. And my, don't forget my stepmother was a terrific novelist herself. So in a house that every now and then contained three novelists, mm -hmm. it, it was difficult to feel blessed and singled out by this facility you had. Mm. And you just got to get on with it. You know? uh, so you're someone who's done a lot of reporting, reportage, and essay writing. You're a very you know, clear and lucid critical thinker. It seems to me that that's a very different oh, yeah. faculty and a very different mode from going into the sort of spooky art of novel writing. How has that been for you, sort of switching, for, switching clothes back and forth? It is, it, is, it is very like switching clothes. And um, the novelist critic has an advantage in that they know the <laughs> process from both ends. Mm. Um, I'm thinking of Poe. Uptyke. Uptyke, uh, yeah. Nab Nabokov himself. But it is... As Updike said it was, you can never come as you are. You have to get dressed up to write an essay, mm. not fiction. You mm -hmm. can definitely come as you can come in your pajamas <laughs> to do that. But there is a sort of high horse, um, ex cathedra from the pulpit yeah. feeling you get when you when you're writing criticism, and it's I find it much harder work than writing fiction. Essays, are real. Uh, bastards um, <laughs> I mean you have to have ideas and you have to know stuff and you have to you've got to organize it mm. and that's that's real breaking rocks I feel although I do it and I I wonder every time I think why, why did I agree to do this it's not pleasurable but surely that's an aspect of novel writing as well. I'm thinking of Nabokov and all his little index cards. I'm, you know, you've got to restructure things. You've got to go back and edit things. You've got to try to keep this giant map in your head or on the bulletin board or whatever. Yeah, and um, length d determines difficulty. Mm. And you, a short story is often very good fun, and it's it's over in a couple of months, and it's out in another right. month. Right. Um, but a novel, it's like when you begin, particularly a long novel, it's like entering this marvelous chamber that is sort of slowly narrowing as you go down it. Hmm. And by the end, you sort of pop out of a manhole on 150th Street <laughs> uh, with no room at all. And if you've written a long novel and you finish it, then you should really feel completely dead because everything you've got is in that novel. And then what do you do, go on vacation or? You... Something like that, <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. Um, <laughs> although what you tend to do is, is just make a few notes for the next one. Uh, it's one of the best feelings of being a novelist is as you're coming to the end of something, you, you're getting glimmers of um, what's to follow. And that glimmer is the most spooky thing of all. When a, when a novel is born in the head, and I've had 
several novelists describe it to me and in print and in person. Nabokov called it a throb. Updike called it a shiver. It's not like any other feeling. And Joseph Heller said, I think truthfully, that nothing about the idea appeals to you other than the fact that you can write a novel based on it. Hmm. And it can, it's, it's often uh, derisory, you know, what, you're, what the transfusion is. It's just a character or it's just an idea or it's just something you read in the newspaper. Lolita said Nabokov arose from seeing the first drawing composed by a primate, a, a chimpanzee, mm. Mm. and all it showed were the bars of the poor creature's oh, yes. uh, cage. Yeah. So the throb or the glimmer may be and, and a tangent to what you eventually produce, but nothing could be more thrilling. It occurred to me as you were speaking that the glimmer of the next novel while you're finishing one a novel is maybe a little bit like infidelity or at least fantasy of infidelity in marriage in the sense that the tunnel is narrowing, <laughs> you're, you're stuck in it, you've got to finish the novel, you're no longer in that grand expansive cathedral that you started out in, and the hope of being able to return to that like beginning again feels a bit like cheating, yeah? Or second honeymoon. Yeah, okay. Is the diplomatic answer. <laughs> so the book is called The Rub of Time, I couldn't help noticing you like wordplay. I couldn't help noticing that the acronym is ROT. Or uh, TROT. <laughs> well, sure, yes, if we include the the. Um, but I guess I wonder how you think about time, you know, uh, at this point in your life and career. I'm going to be 70 next year. It's not my next birthday, but it's, it is happening next year. And um, that's the point at which most writers start to falter. Right. If, as it has been argued, talent and originality are the same thing, um, it's hard to go on being original. I mean, as uncomfortable as that all sounds, I mean, is there, we, you know, the other framework for age is wisdom, <laughs> right? Oh, right? uh, sure. Oh, sure, um, oh, sure. I mean, <laughs> how, do we not learn anything? I mean, about people, about ourselves, about how to live in the world. Yes, we do. Um, old age is, is terrible and remorseless because it gives back nothing, nothing, said Gogol. Um, but it does give back some things. And there are pleasures you have in age that you, you couldn't possibly have in youth. Mm. Um, so it's terrible in the context of the love of the art and the fear of that losing, you know. Yeah, because as you say, the, the fear of losing it is to do with the intensity of the love. Mm -hmm. So, but it actually, you know, if one word sums up what you're doing, it is love. And Updike, again, um, he's a sort of, patchy critic, but sometimes absolutely brilliant. And he said that description itself is an act of love. Mm. And even the, even the sort of the writers are most proud of their alienation and gloom, even they are lovers of life because, you know, why set it down? Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an erotic form as well as a social form. 
You've chosen to describe some fairly ugly things over in your writing. I mean, people and lifestyles and places and so on. And to but that too is an act of love, I suppose, in some way, yes? Well, I've written two novels about the Holocaust and one about the gulag. And there's a number and, of sort of like sketchy, slimy characters. That, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> male monsters, yeah, a yeah, special, yeah. speciality of mine. Um, but even that is, you love all your characters, even the commandant of Auschwitz. Um, as a creation, you love him. Mm. Uh, and you love their independence, their independence of being. You love their willfulness. Um, right. And you, they do things that you wouldn't dare do. And gotcha. there's that kind of freedom. Do you think that's the main reason why you go to those subjects, to, to figure out what that's all about? It's certainly not a moral, moral edge, although I you know, absolutely sub subscribe to the view that um, a, a novel without its morality is, is doomed, that writing is a moral act. But there's no desire to correct. You know, in, in Dickens, all the ill-doers are either tritely punished or improbably converted. You know, a statue falls on their head or they suddenly get <laughs> turn into philanthropists. That is a sort of gothic convention that survived in Dickens, as much gothic stuff does. But there's uh, uh, Lolita and there's its predecessor, a novella called The Enchanter. And in The Enchanter, the transgressor has his fateful delectation of the 12-year-old girl and then runs out into the night, just throws on a Macintosh, runs out into the night, and hurls himself under a streetcar. This grinding, mega-thundering, <laughs> you know, dismembering death. Um, but Lolita works much more subtly and intricately to deliver a moral reproach to Humbert that is uh, really subtle and beautifully done. And fiercer, really, than the streetcar. I think this is the right time for us to shift to the second part of the show. The video team has chosen clips of past interviews from Big Think's archives. You and I are going to watch one and see where the conversation goes. We're not trying to do exegesis or anything like that, just whatever comes to mind. This is Tony Lane Casserly. Title is given here as Finance and Philanthropy. And the clip is called Through AI, Humans Might Literally Create God. We really have to understand more deeply what the implications of creating an AI are. And well, not that we haven't already created AIs, but and I think the bigger fear with artificial intelligence that a lot of people possess can actually be solved by the fundamental ethic behind blockchain technology. Because when you think about systems logic and systems integrity, if the minds operating the system lack integrity, then the system, no matter how it's logically constructed, will lack integrity. And I think the big fear with AI has to do with the centralization of power. 
Because the moment that we put something in a godlike state and we say, you have all knowledge in the universe, you have all power, you have access to every piece of knowledge that is created around the world from every human being at once. And if we store all of that knowledge in something that is all powerful, yeah, that is totally scary. The idea of any one thing having ultimate power, that's always just, that's a bad idea. That's always been a bad idea. But if we can take these concepts and change the way that we think about their ability to own power, I think that will change the way that we perceive what artificial intelligence will be able to do for us because there will be so many net positives created by these emergent and incredible technologies. And yeah, if we have every basic job of someone doing something that doesn't fulfill deeply what is their ultimate human potential because why are we on this earth, right? We're not cogs in a machine. We're human beings. We are real, deep, empathetic. We are creative. And every person on this earth has an unlimited potential, an unlimited potential that for centuries has been constrained by the way that we think about resource allocation, whether that's resource allocation in terms of money, in terms of knowledge. And if we can create a world of infinite resource, I think that is fundamentally when we will be able to unleash in a different way the infinite human potential that every person on earth possesses. And, you know, we're not, we're certainly not at that point in our human She reminded me that. I wish we of were. words of uh, Leon Trotsky when she said, infinite human potential in everyone. Um, I don't think that's true. It has the stamp of utopian falsity. It just isn't the case. I mean, Trotsky said that your next door neighbor on both sides would be a Beethoven and a Shakespeare. This idea that those who insist upon the kind of infinite improvability of the human creature often end up by throwing humans into ovens. Is that an, actually a quote from your book, or am I, have I just no, I think it's confabulated that? I it's a quote from something I wrote about the Russian Revolution. Yeah, or a paraphrase, at any rate. Yeah, yes. I mean, it's going against human nature, uh, which is, as she conceded, pathetic, but also tremendously fallible. I'm a, the Terminator 2 level for what giving infinite power to machines will end up as. You, um, you, you foresee dystopia. Yes. I mean, it's, I think, insane to, to think it's going to be a smooth ride. It's like the internet. All these empowering things, apparently empowering things, are always double-edged. And right. we do know that. It's like the moment when Eve ate the apple. And the apple, remember, was from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right. And it can go either way. And how would you measure up the Internet? I mean, it's been a tremendous gift to mankind. Right. But also unleashed, you know, terrible resentments and uh, bitternesses that you see in that evil undertow of the internet. No, yeah, I don't think it makes any sense to make grand pronouncements about the moral transformation 
of humanity through technology. And morality arises from experience, and a machine can't have experience. It can have knowledge of experience, but it can't, it can't have slowly developed like a human being. Presumably, that's where they're heading with the AI. That's the idea. I mean, even these, even these logical neural networks that, you know, they're not, they're, they're at the level of a human three-year-old, except when it comes to playing chess or Go or something. But they are learning networks. Then they learn through experience in a fuzzy kind of way that's a little different from just programming them. It's already a, a huge and dangerous experiment where we are now. If you look at a brain scan of an Ill illiterate person, mm. then look at the brain scan of a literate person, there are mm. huge differences in the physiological makeup of the brain. And then if you go thirdly to a computer savvy brain, that's just as different from the literate brain. Mm. And these are physiological changes. They're not yeah. just faculties. These are you know, an extra bit here and a smaller bit there. Right, and, right. Um, well, we've been experimenting on ourselves from the very beginning. I mean, every single thing that we've done as a species has been an uncharted, uncontrolled experiment. From climbing out of the trees to... Let's try this. Fire to writing novels. <laughs> but we didn't know it was an experiment. And, and there is a, a superstructure of awareness and control that these people are thinking they can you know utilize for the improvement of mankind and the russian experiment was the soviet union was right. the russian experiment and it didn't work this this is just a sort of flight of fancy but i was wondering if you you know another related technology will be when they can sort of plug a chip into our brain if you could have absolute access to all of whatever it was you wanted to have access to, say it's all literature ever written in every language at your neural fingertips, would you want, would you take the chip, would you swallow the pill? I read something just the other day that said you can have microchips floating around inside you that will repair damaged cells and so on. Yeah. And then this great specter of immortality uh, arises. But immortality in literature is seen as a, a dreadful thing. And eternity is a horrifying prospect because it, it's not, not only that it never ends, it's that it never begins. In that, you know, a million years into your eternity, you're no nearer the end than you were a million years earlier. Right, right. But it's, for you, like, what would be the, what's the apple then? Would it be infinite literary talent <laughs> that it has to come from struggle and doubt and uh, i don't think you can program that into a machine uh, so i i'm certainly you know haven't lost a wink of sleep about the idea of being replaced in, <laughs> in that sense right in the 10 minutes that remains mean to us let's close out with one one last quick clip this is ao scott film critic and author and it is called How America's Comedians Became More Intellectual Than Many of Its Politicians. I feel like if, if you want to see, you know, anti-intellectualism um, uh, on, on, on full display, you can watch some uh, presidential debates. I mean, you can certainly look at look at our political discourse, um, some of it uh, anyway, and, and see, well, you know, um, 
thought and intellect is not held in, 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 in the highest um, value. And uh, I think that um, that concerns me a lot. There is, you know, uh, a tradition. Uh, Richard Hofstadter wrote a book uh, probably 50 years ago now or more called Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, um, where he identified this strain in politics and civic life um, of, of, you know, mistrust of, of expertise, of, of suspicion of, um, of knowledge or of thought or of irony or of, or of nuance. And I think in, in, in culture and the arts, there's, there's a lot of that too. There's a, there's, there's a lot of, of spoon feeding. There's a, there's a lot that's, that's just sort of easy. Um, and I think that it's important to recognize and to reward and encourage um, opposition to that, which can come in, in, in different places. I mean, I, I, think, I think there are, um, you know, champions of intellect and intelligence out there in the world. A lot of them are comedians. I mean, I think we do live at a time where, you know, people like Jon Stewart or Larry Wilmore or, or, or Chris Rock um, or, or Louis C.K. Or, or Aziz Ansari or a lot, I mean, a lot of people are, are out there um, or Amy Schumer or, uh, or Lena Dunham, you know, are, are, are out there kind of saying, well, look, let's, you know, let's be smart. Let's think. Let's like not take things for granted. Let's not just accept what's given to us. A.O. Scott is dead right in that um, ac actually you could take it further and say that writers do tend to be comedians. The tragic vision has always coexisted with the comic vision, as in Shakespeare. Right. Um, and it's comedy that is the more productive and the more creative. Although not so much in Shakespeare. You know, I don't think you'd choose As You Like It over Hamlet or... Uh, no, you certainly <laughs> wouldn't. But... Nabokov said that um, all writers who are any good are funny. Mm -hmm. Think about the basis of humor. What is humor? Clive James said that humor is just common sense working at a different speed. Mm. Humor is just common sense dancing. And he also says in this essay that people who lack a sense of humor shouldn't be trusted with anything because they've got no <laughs> common sense either. On the one hand, uh, the common sense, I mean, seeing things very clearly uh, in, that are happening in front of you and sort of standing outside of them and, and seeing the kind of the parade of absurdity uh, with respect to common sense. And then also it's about surprise, which I think is a feature of originality, as you were yeah. talking about earlier. Well, think what Niels Bohr, the, the great explorer of the subatomic world, he used to have a rabbit's foot on his weekend cottage, you know, symbol of bringing good luck. And uh, his scientist friends would say, surely you don't believe in that. And he said, no, of course I don't. But apparently it works whether you believe in it or not. Um, <laughs> yeah, and A.O. Scott is talking about how we're, we're, we're trusting intelligence and high intellect mainly in the form of explicit comedy at this point, but humor has always been a feature of high intellectual discourse. When I went to Germany, when my second novel about the Holocaust was published, I found that they still labor there under an absolute division between the serious and the comic, and they won't let the two mix. Um, oh, that's interesting. The miscegenation of the serious and the comic is forbidden. They are not probably finding Mel Brooks's song Springtime for Hitler and the producers funny. I I'm, guess. Sure <laughs> I'm sure they're not. But, it, but I think that's 
utterly wrong and, and primitive, actually, because humor and seriousness are inseparable. But you would think it would be sort of in Germany, it would be the psychological legacy, like the aftermath of the Third Reich. I mean, you couldn't, you have to be careful after something like that. Well, the, all credit to Germany um, <laughs> for its tremendous efforts to educate its people about what really happened. And you go to Germany and it's what young people want to talk about. I said, mm. before giving a talk, I said to my publisher, they won't want to hear about the Holocaust. And she said, oh yes, they will. Uh. And when young people want to talk about something, you know it's been more or less mastered. And the memory, the legacy of the Holocaust has been mastered. And this is just, a, I think, an old German philosopher's obtuseness about humor and seriousness. In France, the young people don't want to talk about their much more minor role in the Holocaust because mm. they've never, they haven't done the work. You know, it, you, it takes a couple of generations of real serious effort to get over something like that. Would you like to be German? I mean, how, how would you cope <laughs> No, with it? it must be very difficult. I would imagine France as well. There must be a great deal of uh, shame, you know, at having been conquered. That and um, sending whatever it was, 100,000 Jews to their deaths yes. in Auschwitz, spontaneously, not at the command of the Germans, yeah. off their own bat, and Vichy what? and all the rest. But they haven't done the work. They're too sort of interested in other things. They haven't done that work. Well, and the Mer American legacy is sort of too diffuse for us to really get a handle on. Well, it's too fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're a rough crowd. I've been <laughs> reading a lot of American history, and you realize that Trump should have chosen to, to wrench open this wound just for electoral gain is the most disgraceful thing about him that instead of wanting less of that, he wants more of it. And you think that the Declaration of Independence, with all that stuff about uh, the proposition that all men are created equal. Hmm. Oh, sure. In 1776, there were five million Africans under chattel slavery in America. Right. They, no, they didn't believe that all men were created equal, and they still don't. Speaking of comedy... Trump is maybe stretching the American balloon to its most absurd conclusion. Let's see whether conclusion. it pops. You know. Yeah, indeed. Uh, <laughs> will it self-correct? That's the thing. Martin Amos, it's been great having you on the show today. Thank you for your time. Been a pleasure. And um, Martin's new book is The Rub of Time, Bello, Nabokov, or as I keep saying, Nabokov, Hitchens, Travolta, Trump, Essays and Reportage, 1994-2017. And I'm sorry to say that's the end of another episode of Think Again. But we will be back next week with something very, very different. And in the meantime, I have said this before, but I really like hearing from people. I love getting emails telling me about where you're from, why you listen to the show, uh, a moment that had particular meaning in your life, or anything else that you want to share. So please feel free to email me at jason at bigthink.com. And if you're liking what you're hearing, please take a minute to rate and or review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or whatever other platform you're listening on. See you next week.